So I gathered up my Bravos and my Charlies. They were the medics at the time who had been in Vietnam. And I said, look, you guys know how to do a million things. And I know all the reasons why we should do those million things. So if you teach me, I'll teach you and we will be unstoppable. We got your back, ma'am. And we had a blast learning and teaching. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Gail Pollack to WarDocs. General Pollack is a certified registered nurse anesthetist and has master's degrees in business, health administration, and national security and strategy. While in the Army, she served as the commander of the U.S. Army Medical Command and as the acting Surgeon General of the Army. She was the first woman, the first non-physician to have this role in any of the military services. You can read her full bio at wardogspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll learn about the role a CRNA plays in the military, and you'll hear some lessons learned and valuable insights about leading in turbulent times and making a difference at the strategic level. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Gail Pollack to WarDocs. Gail, thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. So, General Pollack, tell us a little bit how and why you joined the Army. Well, the why is what kept me going in the army as well. I grew up in a crazy house. My father was an alcoholic, very violent, threatened us with knives and guns. It was not a nice place. But as weird as he was at home, he always brought soldiers home for Sunday dinner because he remembered people doing that for him when he was in the Navy in World War II. One of the soldiers he brought home was older. He was in his mid twenties and he just felt very safe. And so I sat down with him and I told him, I was about 10 at the time, what was going on and how frightened I was. And he looked at me, he said, Gail, you're going to get out of here and do great things. I was like, whoa, no one has ever encouraged me like that. So he became very important to me, kind of the knot at the end of my rope. And he continued growing in the army. They sent him to OCS and all of the schools. And this was during the late 60s and mid 60s, I guess. But he went off to Vietnam and believed that leaders stay engaged with their troops. And so he was taking point this day and they got attacked by the Viet Cong and he lost his leg to a hand grenade. But the army medical department treated him and brought him home alive and at the highest quality of life that he could be with a loss of a portion of his leg. And so he continued to serve as that knot at the end of my rope. And as soon as that happened, I said, I'm joining the army because I'm bringing somebody else's big brother home. They didn't know when they took care of Robin, what they were doing for me, but I know what they did for me. And no one in my family had gone to college. And the fact that they had a daughter who wanted to be a nurse and go to college, they thought was the most ridiculous thing they'd ever heard. And I just said, fine, I'll figure it out. And I learned about an army scholarship program that was looking to make the transition from diploma nurses trained at hospitals to baccalaureate prepared nurses because they wanted people with critical thinking skills and not just memorizing rote procedures and things. And so I applied for the program and 
my uh, mom drove me about a hundred miles away for the interview. And it was one of those things that I can close my eyes and I can still see the interview room and Colonel Barberi who did the interview. And she said, well, Miss Pollock, why should we select you for the Army Nurse Corps? And I just looked at her and said, well, I'm one of the brightest young women in America. And if you don't scoff me up, someone else will. My mother was appalled. You can't talk about yourself like that, blah, blah, blah. I said, mom, it's a competition. No one else is going to walk in and go, oh, don't pick me, take Gail. Well, they won't want anyone like you. Ha ha, they did. And I got a fully funded scholarship to college where I graduated as a first lieutenant over four. I was a PFC the whole time. So if I was talking to Navy guys, they considered me a maverick. And I tease all of the academy folks that I know, because my husband's a West Pointer. And so I know a bunch of academy folks. You guys were just in the wrong one. You started as seconds over nothing. What was wrong with that program? So I've been harassing people from the very beginning. So tell us a little bit about your pathway to become a certified registered nurse anesthetist. And what is the common pathway for CRNAs in the military? I actually decided that I wanted to be a CRNA when I was in my Walter Reed scholarship program. We actually had most of our classes and did a lot of our clinical in military facilities around the greater DC area. And probably both a strength and a weakness I have is I know that my brain works. And with the transition to the baccalaureate prepared nurse, I was finding it very difficult with some of the older physicians who wanted to just treat us like trash. And as I looked at different lanes of nursing, I felt like the only place I could really use my mind and be valued for my mind was in anesthesia. So as soon as I graduated from college, I let the chief nurse on my first assignment know, I want to apply to anesthesia school as soon as I can. And so I went to anesthesia school only 18 months after I graduated from college. So I was one of the youngest officers in the program. And the CRNA program inside the military, which is now a PhD program, we have evolved over time so that we would remain reflective of the care and education that was being provided in the civilian world. It is still the main way for the military, for the army to get CRNAs on board because the pay differential is still significant. But just like the docs, if you talk with people about, well, yeah, you can go to school on the outside and think about the bill you're going to have when you're done or you can join the military and the army will put you through school. So we still train probably 98% of our own. Is that an army only program or is it tri-service? No, it's open to the other services. The Navy uses it. The VA is using it now as well. I'm not aware that the Air Force has used it, but I've also been out of that net for a few years now. I'm no longer practicing. When I got into some of the policy positions at the Pentagon working 60 plus hours a week there and looking at the requirements to maintain my skills, I maintained my professional education certification, but I realized I wasn't going to practice often enough to feel like I was safe and I could practice independently. And that independent practice and the respect that the CRNA has for providing high quality care, there was no way I was going to jeopardize that and say, hey, I haven't done an anesthetic in six weeks, so I'm fine. No, I didn't feel fine. So I wasn't going to pretend that I was. What's the role of a CRNA on the battlefield and how did it change during your career? 
And did you ever get deployed as a CRNA? I laugh. I joined the army to deploy because of Robin, but I was never deployed during a conflict. The only deployment per se that I did was when I was in Germany and I participated in Reforger. And it actually presented me with my first OR death. We had a young troop who got caught between two track vehicles and smashed his pelvis. And Troy Reyna and I worked very, very hard. He was the trauma surgeon that we had on the deployment. We worked very, very hard. We were unable to save that young man. But in many circumstances, historically, the CRNA had been the only anesthesia provider, or there would be six or eight CRNAs and an anesthesiologist. So that if we had questions, wanted a second set of hands, we'd say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Let's maximize this patient's outcome. Did that change at all as you went through your career or was it always the farther forward you were more likely to see a CRNA and then maybe at the role three, role four, you'd have more anesthesiologists? As you backed away from the battle locations, you'd see more anesthesiologists. We used to laugh and say we were less expensive to educate, so we were more disposable. But the anesthesia care on the battlefield has evolved so much. The things that they do in care on the battlefield now are things that I didn't even train to do. So they have both the CRNA and the anesthesiologist groups have worked very, very hard to make anesthesia and pain management as effective as possible when you look at the severity of the injuries that we're treating. So tell us a little bit about your first jobs as a staff CRNA when you were at Launchstool and then later at Darnell in uh, Fort Hood. Launchstool was a fabulous experience because there was no, no training going on. Everyone was staff. The medics were trained. The nurses were trained. The docs were trained. We just went in and got the work done. So you learned one another's idiosyncrasies and that if one person said, oh, I got five more minutes, you really had 50. And you had to learn their individual quirks so that you could successfully extubate the patient at the end of the procedure. But it was a great, great experience. And people were very uh, respectful of one another. I think it was one of the places that I saw the least amount of conflict between what I would call similar providers, the optometrists and ophthalmologists, the nurse anesthetists and the anesthesiologists. There's a number of places where, you know, you could get real, oh, I, I don't like to tell the stories about the immaturity that one could view on both sides of the anesthesiologist CRNA platform. I don't think that either side was without sin, but I used to remind people that if you're competent and confident, then other people's confidence and competence won't phase you. If you fail to have confidence and competence, everyone is a threat to you. So if you're being attacked, think about the fact, are they feeling threatened because of your skills? And if they are, that's their problem, not yours and don't get sucked into it. I worked very hard to try and teach people to stay above the emotional fray that can occur anywhere in a hospital, anywhere in leadership, anywhere in organizations. So this was early right after your training. 
Were there any particular? Yeah, I spent two. I spent uh, two years at in San Francisco as my first assignment after anesthesia school, and then I went to Launchstool. And from Launchstool, I went. You asked one of the questions you had for me was all of the master's degrees I have. I picked one of them up in Germany, going to school nights because I wanted to just keep learning them. I like my brain. I'm hungry to learn. So I picked up a master of business there. And then the army picked me up to go to the Baylor program. And I was already thinking about leadership, although it was not something that nurses were either encouraged or allowed to do at that time. So I wanted to figure out what the secrets were that the medical service corps officers had, because it seemed like the MSCs had an awful lot of power in a hospital. And I wanted to understand how they got it. So I went down to San Antonio and got my second master's. And my reward for my second master's was to go back to being a staff nurse anesthetist at Fort Hood. Thank you very much, Gail. We're really glad you like your brain. You're going back to anesthesia. We're short CR days. So let's just go back to early in your career. You go to school, they throw you out of the nest and you're on your own. Did you feel prepared? And you know, are there any clinical cases early in your career that you just totally remembering, oh, wow, that was challenging. And this is how I handled it. I got, a, I got a couple of those. I went to Fort Dix as my first assignment. And I realized that I had all of the book knowledge and I did not have a lot of hands-on knowledge. So I gathered up my Bravos and my Charlies. They were the medics at the time who had been in Vietnam. And I said, look, you guys know how to do a million things. And I know all the reasons why we should do those million things. So if you teach me, I'll teach you and we will be unstoppable. We got your back, ma'am. And we had a blast learning and teaching uh, one another, learning from and teaching one another. But cases that stick out, we had a young trainee attempt suicide and we had a old crotchety nurse that never wanted to deal with anybody. And so she and the docs on night paralyzed and sedated this young man because they weren't sure how much tracheal injury he had done to himself. And I did a one-on-one with him for about 16 hours the next day and realized that he was just a scared kid. And I offered to continue to stay. And they said, you can't work all night. No, you're going home. Well, they paralyzed him again and didn't sedate him enough to me. I think that when you're on a ventilator, you should be pretty sedated so that you don't have to be afraid of, can I draw a breath? And when I came in the next morning, he was fighting the ventilator and just really struggling. And in his fight with the ventilator and his returning strength, as one of the medics tried to re-restrain him when he was already too strong to be re-restrained, he got disconnected from the ventilator and that young man died and it broke my heart. I can't tell you how long I sat on the floor of his room and cried because I knew that he shouldn't be dead. And it really drove home for me in reality, how careful we each in our jobs need to be to protect our patients. That one won't go away. So you mentioned the degrees that you got. When did you get first affiliated with staff jobs or policy jobs? When did that happen in your career? 
Well, that was actually the result of one of those anesthesiologist nurse anesthetist problems. I got into an altercation with one of the anesthesiologists at Fort Hood, and he wanted to try and pull my privileges as a CRNA. And it was one of those that I should have been practicing what I was preaching. Remember that when you're being attacked, it's because someone else is threatened by your skills. But when he physically assaulted me, I wasn't a happy camper and the army moved me out of Fort Hood for my safety and put me into a job at the Pentagon because it was like the only one that would kind of get me out of the environment for a while. And it was actually like the best thing that could have happened to me because I had hoped to go into some kind of policy or administrative job when I finished that second master's. And so this brouhaha at Fort Hood got me out of it. That wasn't my intent. I was furious. I was like, no, I'm not being PCS'd. He doesn't get to feel like he won by getting rid of me. And they said, Gail, you got stuff to do in the army. You're out of here. And I started a job in the deputy chief of staff for personnel. I was responsible for the army weight control rig. And I can't tell you how many letters I answered from families. Have you looked at General Schwarzkopf? How come my son is being booted from the army and you still have him? Well, it's because he has the neck the size of a bull. And the measurements that we take allow him to stay and your son's doesn't allow him to do that. But I loved working with the line officers. And I actually thought I would get deployed because that was when Saddam invaded Kuwait the first time. And I was like, I'm one of the senior anesthetists in the army. The nurse corps said, and when I called them and said, hey, I'll go on this deployment. They said, no, we just got you in this job. If we do rotations, you'll go in the next rotation. It's like, hmm. And then I got called in by the three-star General Reno to say, Major Pollock, I was briefed the other day when I took over this job that I'm critically short nurse anesthetist. And I said, yes, sir, you are. And he said, well, then would you help me to understand why you're on my staff? I said, sure, sir. I'm happy to do that. It's a dead end job because if we have aspirations for leadership or learning other skills, because the army's short, they will never let us try those things. So then people get frustrated and they leave. So we basically lose the anesthetist because we're not willing to challenge them. And I'm here now as like a beta test. And if you send me back, the message it will send to the anesthesia community is that there's no escape from anesthesia. And I don't think you want to do that. And he looked at me and said, okay, well, then I have a job for you. Okay. He said, I just wrote a really big check because we have too many people who smoke. I want you to change that. Okay. And so the big challenge that I was handed while I was up at the Pentagon was to figure out a way to make the army smoke free. So I did. Couldn't do it through the medcoms. So we did it through the director of logistics and environment, but we got it done. And I was able to explain to all of these rugged old NCOs and officers who'd been smoking for decades, why they needed to make that change. And painted it in a way that they could see why their troops would be better off if we changed the policy. So I would tell you that was my first real big success in changing the way a large system works. So later on in the 90s, you went to Walter Reed as the, the chief of anesthesia services. Tell us a little bit about that job. 
I wasn't happy about going there because the last time I had done anesthesia on a regular basis was a couple of years earlier when I was down at Fort Hood. And I felt like the people who had trained the doc that assaulted me were the leaders at Walter Reed. And I was like, whoa, 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 I'm not happy. So I actually did like sideline preparations to resign and leave the military. Because if I told the chief nurse and I told the hospital commander who was General Blank at the time, if I ever come to you and say that there is a level of threatening or hostile or violent behavior and you don't take action, I will be gone in 24 hours. I will submit emergency leave requests and I will fill out my emergency resignation paperwork. And General Blank said, no, Gail, we, we have a number of departments here that need to be policed up. And I'm aware of that. And I will support you in anything that you discover. So what kind of mindset should a leader have when they think they're going into a hornet's nest like that? I think the most important thing was to be very consistent, to be very calm and unflappable so that people could learn that you really would protect them and support them. And you had to listen to the people that there's certain personalities that like to cause drama. So you need to figure out how do I interact with those drama seekers to mitigate their propensity to cause drama so that we don't get everybody all worked up over nothing and just be very consistent. And it is that consistency over time. Oh, you're worried about that. Where did you hear that from? Was that from me? Was that in any written materials I provided? No, but somebody said, well, somebody's full of crap and I'm glad you came to me. No, that's not an issue. No, that's not a concern. No, we're not doing that. Consider your sources. And just that consistency, that calm led to a, a huge morale shift. People were physically afraid to come to work when I got there because there was so much intimidation and hostility going on. And I would say that was true on both sides. Both CRNAs and physicians were afraid to come to work because of the leadership there. So let's fast forward a couple of years. And we recently talked to a guest who was a family practice physician at Fort Benning. And on 9-11-2001, he said that he was delivering a baby at Martin Army Hospital, where you were the commander. Yep. So what do you remember about that day and how did it change your world? I was actually not at Benning that day. I was up at Fort Gordon doing some in-processing and leadership work with General Poor. I was sitting there during these briefings. The staff would come in and say, ma'am, this just happened. Okay, it's a high frequency aircraft area it could have been an accident. Let's not all freak out yet. And a few minutes later, when the second tower was struck, he said, oh, we got an issue now. And then I called General Poor and said, hey, sir, bad stuff's happening. And I need to be with my unit, not sitting up here chatting with you. So with your permission, I'm out of here. He says, go. So I blasted down the highway. I was probably one of the few people out on the road that day, zooming between Augusta and Fort Benning and got back that afternoon. And it was busy for the next few days as we tried to figure out they wanted to close the hospital. I was like, no, 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 no. We're not closing the hospital. 
because we are the rudder of the community and we will stay available and we will stay calm and we will do what our patients need us to do. So I worked with the mayor of the town and we got off base a parking set up so that we could load buses so that an MP could check the bus and then the whole bus could just go down the shoulder and blast onto post and mitigate that first day where people spent just like every other post 10 or 12 hours sitting in their cars trying to get on base. So we found ways around that. And every afternoon at two o'clock, I did a good afternoon. This is Colonel Pollock, your commander. This is what I know. And this is what I need you to do. So I felt like I was in a you know flashback from when we were little kids and heard the afternoon announcements in school. But I knew that the consistency of them hearing from me each day. So it got recorded and sent out to the evenings and night people. So every day people heard from me. This is what I know. So these are the facts as I know them. This is what I need you to do. That's a bad rumor. Let's not hear any more about that. And just tried to be, again, that consistent, calm, predictable person that I think it's very important that leaders do. Well, this is the, the small world of Army medicine. On that day, I was actually in the urology clinic at Eisenhower Army Medical Center. So we were at the, okay. the, the same place. We're in the same on, physical place. It was when we found out about those bad activities and bad players. So one of the interesting tidbits I found in your bio is that you were awarded the Order of St. Maurice, presented by the U.S. Army Infantry Association in 2001. Tell us a little bit about that story. That was a combination of events. Uh, General Paul Eaton was the infantry commander, and he's the one who awarded me that mind-blowing experience. I had no idea I was going to get it, but I had worked with him over a number of tasks. We had problems with troops just missing a lot of training time. And I was like, okay, they're getting cellulitis because they're tearing up their knee and then their legs are getting infected because they don't get clean and because they're out in the field and yada, yada. And I was like, well, why don't we just get them knee pads? Well, the SEALs use the seals use them, special, the guys that brag use them. The Rangers like them. Why don't we get them knee pads? And the infantry commander said, we're not buying that stuff for our trainees. I said, fine, I will. And let's do a study. And it's not going to be one of the big fancy studies. It's going to be a back of the envelope study. How many people got cellulitis before knee pads? How many got them afterwards? Well, we basically eliminated cellulitis. So Eaton was like, Gail, you're like not mainstream. I'm like, no, nobody's ever going to say I'm mainstream. And then we're just, there were some other issues, health issues that I just said, no, that's a crazy way to look at that. Let's look at it from this other way. And we had success and I had great docs down there that were willing to, you want us to do it? How? <laughs> well, let's try it. If it doesn't work, then tell me it was a stupid idea. But if we can decrease their illness, their injuries, all of that money gets returned to us because we're not spending it on antibiotics and your time and you might be able to teach and keep them well. So you had the opportunity to serve as commander at several military treatment facilities, including large ones like Triple Army Medical Center in Hawaii. What, what's the biggest challenges for a hospital commander, and how did you handle that? The biggest challenges are not enough time to do all the things that you want to do. 
time management is just so important. And being willing to delegate, trust, but verify. Once you delegate to someone, they're going to execute to the best of their ability. Then tell them the commander's intent, delegate. And if it works, they get all the credit. If it doesn't work, it's your fault because you delegated it. And as soon as people learn that that's how you play, they work their butts off for you. And so then I didn't have time to do 10 major projects and be in charge of them, but I could delegate 10 projects and then check in. What do you need? How's it going? What's working? What isn't? But I think one of the absolutely essential pieces other than time management, learning to delegate is it's not about you. It's about your team and growing and developing them so that they could take over your job any day because you've challenged them. You've made them think you understand their critical thinking processes. I often think about Jim Peak, who had was one of our surgeon generals and people were terrified to brief Jim because he'd start the, what if, what if, what if, did you think about this? Did you think about this? Did you think about this? He wasn't just trying to get in your face and be ugly. He wanted to understand how far down the what if chain had you taken it? Because if you had taken it down five or six lanes, that's what he would do as a cardiothoracic surgeon. What if this would happen? Well, I do that. Well, what if it didn't work? I do this. What if that didn't work? I do this. So that's how his brain worked. And when he understood that you would drill into something like that, then he was easy to brief. But people always, again, took it so personally. He doesn't trust me. Well, it's trust, but verified. I taught him that at West Point. And I, that's why I would check in. I was not an aggressive briefing receiver. People could generally tell by my face whether or not I was happy. And people would often say, ma'am, don't look at us like that. Well, if you don't want me looking at you like that, then I guess you better fix what you just told me. But assessing them so that when you check in with them, how, how's it going? Are you on track? Do you have all the resources that you thought you had? Because you said you could have this done by this day with these resources. Is that still true? You don't wait until the day it's due, you trust, but verify. And then if you find out that, well, something's changed and they need some more support, you still have time in that timeline to get that corrected. And if your ego is not your driver, then you're willing to teach. And I think that is the next important thing that a hospital commander has to do. Because as we're developing people so they can replace us, we have to teach them. Yes, you recommended this, but it's not going to work in this circumstance. And that's not where you stop. The reason it's not going to work is this and this and this. I had access to more information in the big picture than you did. So I think we can use this recommendation later, but it won't work for us right now. And when you've afforded people the respect of listening to their recommendations, evaluating it, and then telling them why it is or is not a valuable piece right now, they're willing to keep giving you ideas. But if you just, that'll never work. Well, they're never going to give you another idea. And you're absolutely dependent on them because they're your eyes and ears of the organization.
as the commanders, we are on the road all the time, whether it's on our installation, in our community, or going across our region and our areas of responsibility. We have to have people that we can totally trust or we drive ourselves nuts. So you clearly impress some people and in the army, in the DOD, in the U.S. government, and we're appointed as the deputy surgeon general. And then a couple months later, you became the acting surgeon general right around the time of some turbulent things going on in the front pages of the Washington Post with Walter Reed. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how you dealt with that as a leader and what did you do and what advice would you give to people who find themselves in really tough leadership positions? Yes, it was a very tough leadership position. We were we were basically under attack from the media, from Congress, from our constituents. The Army accepted the Surgeon General's resignation. And General Cody's comment to me was, well, girl nurse, go fix it. I'm like, great. It's not like I'm going to be able to fix this on my own. And one of the things that was my biggest worry was because we'd never had a woman or a non-physician in the position that physicians would say, we're so totally broken now, I'm out of here. So I knew I had to get to what I thought were key opinion leaders and tell them how I was seeing the big picture and what needed to be done and how dependent I would be on them to save our organization. Because if they started to attrit, the younger folks would follow and the AMED would have been broken beyond repair. And I said, look, we haven't been funded. We haven't had people. We haven't had support. Although the army has always said, oh yeah, we'll ask for more for you. They didn't do it aggressively. And we've had a decade of being underfunded. I am going to beat on that for us, but I can't spend every minute worrying about which of you is either going to try to undermine me or just leave and cause the organization to crumble. Can I count on you to be part of the team that helps get through this? Because I can't get it through all by myself. I absolutely need you all as leaders helping me. And I think that they were surprised that I was that frank with them. But the members of the AMED, whether they're docs or nurses or MSCs or whichever lane you want to go into, we're not stupid people. And I knew that if they didn't believe that I understood the gravity of the situation we were in, they would just pull pitch. And I worked very hard to gain their trust and sustain that trust. I think the most fun moment, fun being relative, of course, was when I got called down to Congressman Murtha's committee and they were, so I'm sitting at the end of a long rectangular table in what I would always call the hot seat. And they're all shouting at me and shaking their fingers. And I'm just sitting there rolling my eyes and biting my lip. And when they were done, well, General Pollock, what are you going to do about this? I said, well, with all due respect, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to answer your question with a question. And the whole room goes silent. And I said, we've been asking for people, equipment, dollars, supplies, building maintenance kind of dollars for over a decade. 
and we're in two wars and we don't have the money to invest in the roof that caused the leak, that caused the mold, that caused the soldiers to complain about their environment. So when you all get up in the morning and decide you're going to fund us in all of our necessary financial lanes appropriately, I will be happy to work with you. Until you've decided you're on the team, my hands are tied. And I got another billion dollars for the Army Medical Department. So what was it like to be the the face of Army Medicine in front of the media who were, like you said, were in every space around that whole environment? That's a great question. I told Secretary Guerin that I wanted to do a media meeting. And he was like, Gail, the media is eating my generals alive. I can't lose another one of you from the amen this week. And I said, sir, I got I to gotta get them to call off the dogs because if they don't stop attacking the AMED, I'm not going to have an AMED to lead. And he's like, well, oh, Gail, you're so stubborn. All right, but you got to talk to the, the media people. Okay, sir, I'll call the media people as soon as I leave the office. Will that be good? Yes. So I walk out of his office. I pick up the phone. I call down the hallway to the media thing. And of course, everybody's out at meetings. But I had fulfilled the requirement. You got to call them. I know the intent was you were supposed to have a conversation. So then we sent out a request and I had 16 media people show up a couple of hours later for a meeting at the Pentagon. And I just sat down with them and said, hi, have any of you ever seen me before? And they said, no. I said, have any of you ever talked to me on the phone or exchanged email with me? Well, no. Okay, great. Let me tell you about Gail. And let me tell you about the, an organization that I don't think you want to fracture. I said, because I'm not sure you understand the second and third order effects about what you're doing. I understand you're pissed at the president because of us being in these conflicts and therefore getting everybody engaged by representing the soldiers is a great way to get them fired up. And I got that, but you got to stop. And they're like, well, why should we? Well, would you like them to die on the battlefield? Because if you destroy the Army Medical Department and we don't have the men and women to be with those soldiers when they get injured, they're not going to make it back to Launchstool, let alone America. So do you want them cared for or do you want them dead on the battlefield? And they're like, really? Why would that happen? I said, because it will only take a few key people for them if they leave. They're going to take their entire cadre with them. And then we won't have an organization anymore. And I don't think that was your intent, but that will be the outcome if you don't lighten up. And the next day there was a little closing on the, in the front page. It wasn't on the front page. It was a couple of pages in where they closed the article, but they said, we'd like to give something to the effect of, we're going to give General Pollock a chance to see what she can do. And so challenging Congress, working with my senior physicians to convince them not to go anywhere, that we could get through this, and then calling off the media. They were the three things that I thought were the hardest, but I just felt like I had to attack them dead on. What was the biggest lesson that you learned as a leader during that time? That you can't be thinking about your next job you can't be thinking about your promotion. You can't be thinking about a new assignment. 
You have to be willing to give everything you've got, even if they're going to take you out to what's going on. How hard is it to do that in the military where that's kind of the lifestyle is that you're always looking for the next promotion, the next job. How can you really put all of your effort and ignore that stuff? My response to that is very simple. Why did you choose to serve? I chose to serve because the care that we provide saves lives, returns those men and women to their families. I didn't join to become a Fortune 50 CEO, which is what I was when I was the acting Surgeon General. That wasn't why I joined the Army. I joined the Army to take the best possible care of the people who would come to us and of my team members as I possibly could. And I think that my success to that point was because I had the blessing of having adults to work for. And I still laugh and say, I have this fantasy that one day I'm gonna be surrounded by adults when I go to a workplace. Unfortunately, that's a fantasy because we have an awful lot of people that go to work with us every day that don't want to be adults. They want to act like little four-year-olds and stop their feet and get all of the attention. And it's not how you build a team. It's not how you lead. That's not how you get somebody to follow you up any hill you're going to climb. Because if they don't know you care about them, why should they care a whit about you? But if they love you, if they like you, they move you forward. So you mentioned several firsts, the first female in the role of Surgeon General, the first non-physician in the role of Surgeon General. We've got another first here for you. You're the first nurse corps officer on War Docs. So well, that's, that's- I'm awesome. delighted to be a representative of the Army Nurse Corps. I was the Corps Chief too. So I had my hands full. Right. And so that was kind of a lead in. And I know that this is not anywhere near those other things, but it leads into my next question, which is as the Corps Chief for the Army Nurse Corps, what kind of things were on the top of the plate? Because you did that right during a time where the op tempo was huge in OIF, OEF. And so what kind of challenges did you face and, and what were you doing about them? I was facing incredible attrition because the nurses that were deployed for a year, 15 months were coming back and resigning. So I knew I, the most important thing I had to do fast and furiously was to change the deployment period of time. And everybody said, oh no, it's only the docs that are going to go for 90 days. And I'm like, no, the nurses are going to do that too. And I worked with the line units and the, the line commanders who had come back and they understood the intensity and once, as I was talking with them, trying to figure out how, how will I paint it in a way that they will understand, they gave me the answer because they're like, Gail, I don't know how your nurses do it. I go into a facility to, to give a purple heart and I don't ever want to give another purple heart again because I don't want to have to see that kind of injury. And it's like, I'm so glad you're talking about that. Because would you like to do that every day, 24 hours a day for 12 months, 15 months? You tough enough for that? And they'd go, you know, these three and four star journalists would go, no. He said, okay, well, my nurses aren't tough enough for it either. You need to help me change that. And they're like, what do you need? We got to have those nurses there. I said, yeah, I know. Because they, they, soldiers and 
injured folks, they've always loved nurses, you know, who are, we're in their faces a whole lot more than the other, the other healthcare team members are. And so I was able to work it with the line and they're the ones who changed it. So that was one of the first things I focused on. And then I was losing my highly experienced nurses and justified incentive specialty pay for different types of nurses requiring certification by the professional organization. So it wasn't just a, oh, well, I'm a 66 Juliet. And so I get extra money because I'm a Juliet. No, when you're certified by your professional organizations and you've attained that level of professional recognition, then you'll be, then you'll be able. But one of the pieces that I did that gave me the most satisfaction was I told you about the scholarship that I had been on and it was to transition us away from diploma nurses. Well, it turns out that the garden reserve had never implemented the law. And when I got one of my first briefings as the incoming core chief, and I heard that they were still not in compliance with the baccalaureate entry to the core, I hit the freaking roof. And it took all four years of my core chief time before I got that changed. And again, I went to the line and said, when you see talented people there in out in your line units, you send them to OCS, but you don't let them become captains until they have their baccalaureate degree. Because the law is you have to have a baccalaureate degree to remain on active duty as an officer. So why don't we do that with the guard and reserve? And they were like, well, well, well. And I said, we will also change the retirement regulation so that you don't have to be promoted. If you want to stay a diploma grad and be a second lieutenant for 20 years, I don't give a rat's butt because you'll never be in charge of anybody. But if you want to assume leadership positions, whether it's a ward nurse or a section nurse or a department chair, you are going to be baccalaureate qualified. And the line guys go, we'd throw them out in a heartbeat if they didn't have their degree by the time they went before the captain's board. Yes. So I very happily got a copy of that new policy. So one of the things that army medicine has struggled for clinicians is how do we know that they're ready to do what is required on the battlefield? When you were the nurse corps chief, how did you know that the nurses that were getting deployed were ready to do what they were being asked to do? I think we got better at that over time, just as we've gotten better at it in all of the other MOS and started to really identify what are the critical skills that we need. But because we had so many ICU nurses who had done multiple levels of nursing, I knew that some of it is like riding a bicycle. Even if you don't do it for a while, it'll come back. And one of the delights to me about the nurse corps, they're so education focused. So if they don't remember something, they're not going to make it up. They're going to look it up. And then when they look it up, they're going to teach their colleagues. So I knew we would have a trickle effect. So even if we only had one or two nurses out of a squad of nurses who were really competent on day one, they would very rapidly bring everybody up to competence. But I think it's very important that we look at how do we maintain those skills over time? Because the way that we do, I don't call it healthcare, I call it disease care, 
because I don't think that we've figured out yet how to keep people well. We treat their diseases, but the way that we're treating disease these days, it's a very, very small number of people who are actually hospitalized and need that 24 hour on continuous care. So the number of healthcare team members who get those experiences is very small. And I don't care if you're talking about medics or nurses or docs or respiratory therapists or physical therapists or which group, we've got to think about how do we maintain those skills over time and knowing what those skills are so that we can say, well, gee, this, these are the skills we expect you to maintain. Then we as an organization have an obligation to say, where can we send you to refresh those skills? How do we put you in side by side with others who have that experience so that you can rapidly come back up to speed, just like you would if there were 10 docs or 10 nurses together in you know, as well as I do, that there's always going to be a couple of people who are going to love learning, growing, and teaching, and they're going to bring the rest of the team along. We need to find civilian groups that are willing to teach us, refresh us, and fine-tune us. I think we're making some progress. It's never as fast as we as leaders want. It's definitely not as fast as the people that we're supporting think it should happen, but with big organizations it can be really hard to get everybody engaged. Why does it take so long to bring in a new computer system? Because you got to buy so many copies and we have to train so many people and it takes a long time. But it's the commitment, the desire to do the best that you can that we have in so many people in the AMED that allows us, even when it's not a perfect circumstances, so many people will rise to the occasion That's why we consistently take care of people so well. Do we do it perfectly? No. Will we ever have it perfect? No, we're human beings. But the men and women that serve with us, they sure want it. When they know that someone's really at risk, they give it all they've got. That's all we can ask them for. A soldier that's injured is never going to ask you for more than your best. And they give it to them every time. So after retiring, you still stayed connected to military medicine. You served on the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the services from 2012 to 2016. Mm -hmm. Tell us some of the issues that you addressed during those times. Boy, oh boy, it it made me feel like being in the Army was easy. An advisory group has no authority. And I laughed when we put together our, our annual recommendations. It's like, well, gee, for the last 21 years, we've made similar recommendations. Obviously, we're not talking to the right people, where the right people don't even know we exist. Because we were still talking about the appropriate training that was available for both genders. I was there when the services made the decision to open everything to anyone. And I was like, this is not going to be the downfall of the organization if we have standards that are based on science and not somebody's grandpa's theory on how people can serve. So if we look at science and we train to the task, and if you can train to the task and you know what the standards are and you can do that, then go do the job. Not everybody wants to do the job. I found it fascinating when we looked at some of the physical capabilities research was that 
a large number of the, I'll call them slighter men, they're smaller, but that the military seems to think that every guy is five foot 10 or above. Well, so there's a lot of guys in the military who are five foot four, five, six, seven. They're not five foot 10. And they had trouble doing some of those tasks as well. So it wasn't like only guys can do the task. Not all men could do the task. So getting people to understand that just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean we always have to do it that way. Uniforms, uniforms are uncomfortable for men and women. And a lot of times I'd say, why are we just addressing women's issues? These are service member issues because there are very few challenges that I ever saw in the military that were purely one or the other. You know, this group, not that group. Well, there's some of, it's all a continuum. It's all a bell curve. We all fall at different spots along that continuum. But the access that we did have to some of the senior DOD leadership was why I think that we made some strides during that time in addressing some historical challenges. But it's never easy. So looking back now, what would you say is the thing that you miss the most about being on active duty in military medicine? Being with other men and women who consistently demonstrate values, integrity, loyalty, selflessness. We laughed when they came up with that leadership acronym. And I would tell you, there's an awful lot of people I've met in the civilian world that wouldn't know how to even look those words up in the dictionary. And the lack of integrity in the civilian world is what's been hardest for me. You know, in, in the military, we may not be on each other's annual Christmas list, for example. You may not get my annual letter, but I'm not going to lie to you because someone's life is at stake. So I may not like you, but I'm not going to lie to you. And that ethos, I don't think, is a strong one in the civilian community. That's what I miss the most, knowing that I can trust the men and women to my right and left. And that when you say to me, yeah, ma'am, I'll get that done. I know that as long as I've given you the resources that you need, you're going to get it done. Not so with a whole lot of the other folks I've talked to outside. That's what I miss. So if your future family 50, 100 years from now, listen to this podcast, what would you want to say to them about your legacy in military medicine? It's about maximizing a team. It's about suppression of ego. It's about the desire to consistently do the best that you can do, even if it's not perfect and awe-inspiring. But in different circumstances, if we always do the best that we can do, people around us will always want to be around us. They will trust us and they'll go forward with us, even if it's not going to be fun where we're going forward to. So I would really like to think that a legacy would be that I was very open-handed and I valued everyone's perspective, regardless of their education or their chronological age, because none of us look at things exactly the same. I used to laugh and tell people, okay, let's think about the round table. And my staff knows that I always wanted round tables. I hate rectangle tables. I don't like power seats. I want a round table so that everyone can see one another so that they feel like they're on equal footing to say things, to help figure out a way forward. And I knew I always needed their input 
I'm smart, but I don't know the answers to every question that I've ever encountered. And I always needed their feedback so that we could all together collectively do our best. We've been speaking with retired Army Major General Gail Pollack. Gail, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs. And thank you for your service to the nation. Well, I'm delighted to have been here with you on War Docs. I'm honored to have served. And I often tell people that if I was 17, because I joined the Army when I was 17, if I was 17 again, I would do it all again in a heartbeat. It was a fabulous life. I met fabulous people. And I'm just very, very grateful for all of that. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.